is found in Hosea chapter 2, 14 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there I will give her vineyards, or give her her vineyards rather, and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Our New Testament reading is, and our sermon text for that matter, is in Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. He, that is Jesus, went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Excuse me. No one sews a piece of untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, again we come this morning... Because you are so good. God, we come because you have called us. We come because you promised to be with us. Indeed, we come, Lord Jesus, that we might be transformed in the hearing of your word, transformed in the enjoying of our Savior, transformed as we are invited to the table. God, would you bless this time as we study your word? Would you indeed speak to us and bless us as we bless your name? It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Come as you are. You've heard that before, right? Right? It's become a common mantra in our day, though perhaps historically it's been said before in in some form or another. Part of what popularized this statement in recent decades was the 1992 title track 
Come As You Are by Nirvana, a group of grunge misfits, self-proclaimed that is. They were quite popular, so perhaps not misfits, but they sang this song, Come As You Are. The opening lyrics are confusing at best. This is the opening line, Come as you are, as you were, as I want you to be, as a friend, as a friend, as an old enemy. Take your time, hurry up, the choice is yours. Don't be late. Take a rest as a friend, as an old memoria. A memoria is, a, is something that causes you to remember something else. Those are confusing, though, right? Confusing lyrics. What do they mean? Well, Kurt Cobain, the lead singer, said that the song was about the expectations placed on people and perhaps the, the mixed messages that come. The producer of the song said that it was a tribute to the acceptance of outcasts of misfits. The contradicting nature of these lyrics actually captures how confusing and contradicting the lyrics are, or rather how confusing the mantra is in our day. This mantra is often used but rarely meant. See, social groups and movements say in our day, come as you are, but as long as you agree with us. Come as you are, but don't, di- di- don't criticize how we think or how we reason. Some politicians say, come as you are, as long as you vote for me and my platform. But plenty of Christians or churches also can say, Jesus' message is come as you are. But often their actions are, come as you are, but clean yourself up before you get in the door, please. Come as you are, but if you want to stay, you better act the part. Or even the opposite, come as you are, because Jesus just wants you to be your authentic self. Don't change a thing. Live your truth. What do you think come as you are means? You've come this morning. You've come to him, to his body, to the church, and to worship. Why? How do you come this morning? How do you come? Well, Jesus' message is come as you are, but how does he mean it? How does Jesus mean it? Our text will answer that today, but it will also do it by showing that Jesus tears up the day's notions of religiosity, the expectations of traditions, and he bursts even good religious expectations, good religious practices, because they cannot contain what he has come to do. In sum, our text teaches us this. You can see it in your bulletin. It teaches that Jesus invites sinners to feast with him. Jesus invites sinners to feast with him. So you must find your seat at the table. In, Jesus, uh, in verses 13 through 17, we hear Jesus' invitation as coming from one who is a great physician. In verse 13, if you look back at the text with me, we see Jesus going out to the sea once again. Right? He's out in desolate places. He goes out to continue to preach, and here it says to teach, and the crowds tag along. In verse 14, though, we pause, and we watch Jesus' eyes as they, tr- as they are looking at one man. He looks at Levi, the tax collector, who later on will be named Matthew. This is the only place he's ever called Levi in, these, in the Gospels, although it is in other Gospels as well. This is the only place he is called Levi. In verse 15, well, rather, Jesus, in, in calling out to Levi, says, follow me, right? And Levi does what? 
He rises and he follows him. And verse 15 jumps to a new scene, though, away from the sea. Now we are in Levi's house. And because he's rich, it is likely a large house. And there Jesus is having a meal with those that follow him, with those who are tax collectors, with those who are sinners. In verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees, that's a, a set of religious teachers, see this, and they don't confront Jesus directly. They're a bit too sheepish, perhaps, at this point, though that will change. But rather, they're asking his disciples, why? Why does Jesus eat with such people like this? Well, verse 17 says that when the word got around to Jesus, he directly answers the scribes. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There's a few questions we have to ask in this section and those primary questions are, who are the tax collectors and sinners? Why is it a problem that Jesus is eating with them? And finally, why does God have Mark record this? Why is this scene here for us today? Why does it matter? Well, first, who are the tax collectors and sinners? Well, remember that the empire of Rome rules the world. And part of how they show they're doing that is they tax the people. They take their money. And so they would come and they would appeal to the locals and they'd say, this is the tax amount for this year. Who or which of you is able to get it for us? Locals would then bid to be able to collect the taxes in the name of Rome because if they did this, they had the freedom to skim off the top. They could take as much as they wanted as long as Rome got its share. And this obviously invited extortion, right? Asking for more than was necessary. And they did. So tax collectors were very rich, and they were very hated. But what is worse than, than this, or what is worse with this, is that local tax collectors were fellow Jews. They were sellouts. They were traitors, right? They worked for the enemy. And they were so hated and so distrusted, they weren't even allowed to be witnesses or judges in the court of law. Even the synagogues would reject their financial giving. Man, you know that's bad. If they won't take your money, they really don't trust you. Because the synagogue knew, of course, that it was stolen. If you work an occupation that is described on equal footing with sinners, you know that you are the lowest of the lowest. You are the scum of the earth. And they were. Well, who are sinners then? We need to answer. Sinners are describing the people that the religious teachers would deem as outcasts, as the lost causes, those they even believed were destined for damnation how they thought of the sinners because they would sin so openly so unashamedly these were the gamblers the prostitutes the thieves the violent the people who conducted their business and their sport on the sabbath but sinners wasn't just confined to these open sins sinners also included those who couldn't live up to the religious expectations of the day they were the people who were too busy they were too uneducated they were too uncaring they were too poor they were the trash of society. They too were thought of as sinners. They were outcasts. And Jesus, Jesus sees society's trash and he says, come follow me. So why is it a big problem for Jesus to call Levi and then to eat with the kind of people that Levi hangs out with? Well, to some degree, and we could, we could get this, uh, it gives the impression that Jesus approves of their sin. But the real issue here is that these people are ritually unclean. 
They're unclean. They can't come to God and worship him because they are unclean due to their sin. They're defiled. Now, uncleanness is not a matter of washing your hands before supper. That's not it. But rather, it's of following the Old Testament law in its ceremonies and its sacrifices so that people could come before a holy, holy, holy God, as we sang. And so those things were necessary because the priests could then declare that you were clean, that you were forgiven, and you could then have what with God? Fellowship, relationship. This is some of the process that Pastor Matt described uh, just a couple weeks ago about the leper. However, uncleanness due to sin, like this group of people, is also, it's infectious, but not like leprosy. It's infectious because as clean people come near to these sinners, they are made unclean as well. And so that is the tension, right? This is what people are witnessing in verse 15. How is it that Jesus is hanging out with sinners? This great religious teacher, how can he hang out with sinners and not become unclean? And people think perhaps he is. And sharing a meal was the ultimate sign of approval in that day. Right? This is the sign that we are friends, that we have intimacy and relationship. So verse three, or rather the third thing here, the third question, why does God through Mark want us to see the story and feel this tension? Well, verse 17 answers it, doesn't it? Verse 17 tells us, Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. But the question remains, how can Jesus go close to sinners and not become unclean and not be soiled by their sin? See, if you remember that leper from two weeks ago, when the leper came near to Jesus, what happened? Jesus did not get leprosy. Jesus did not become unclean. No, the leper was made clean. See, despicable sinners cannot make Jesus unclean. Rather, in coming near to him, or rather him coming near to them, what happens? They become clean. See, last week's text even showed us that not only do people become, or the unclean become clean, but even the paralyzed, broken sinners get healed and forgiven in coming near to this Christ. So the tax collectors, the sinners, are made clean. They are made forgiven in Jesus coming near to them. And indeed, we believe it's by faith that they come, because what does Levi do as the kind of paradigmatic one? or the paradigm, when Jesus says, come follow me, Levi does in faith and leaves it all, these sinners, we believe, reflect perhaps that same posture. But I want you to notice something here. Does Mark record Jesus saying, clean thyself, and I shall come and eat with you? No. That's a bit uncomfortable, right? The scriptures say that sin is slavery, Sin is rebellion, but notice what verse 17 says. What is sin, according to Jesus here? It's sickness. It's sickness. To love the things that kill you, that damn you, that's sickness. And Jesus, the physician, comes and he calls and he cleans and he forgives and he has friendship with sinners. I want you to catch this arc. We have to see this over these last few texts the last few sermon texts. Because you see, in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, there's a normal cycle that we see. There is sin and defilement, then there is cleansing, and then there's sacrifices. So ritual cleansing and sacrifices to forgive. And then that was always followed by what? By a restoration of fellowship. 
by a covenant meal with God. So what do we see here? Jesus cleansed that defiled leper with a touch. He forgave the paralyzed sinner of his sins. And here he comes near to sinners. And what would we expect from that ark? We'd expect fellowship, right? And this is what Jesus does. He is living out Leviticus. He has cleansed. He has forgiven. And now he eats with such sinners. A meal of peace and fellowship with God. Don't, ma- don't miss this added level of irony. Why does Mark name Levi here? Because he never says it anywhere else. And God doesn't waste any space, not even on names. Nowhere else is Levi called this. See, Levi's name is a namesake for the tribe of the Levites, right? They were the Levitical tribe who were set apart to complete those declarations, those sacrifices, those cleansing rituals so people could be cleaned and forgiven. And then have fellowship with God, right? There's an entire book about these guys, Leviticus, right? Leviticus, about those laws. And Levi here, look how bad it is. Levi here is doing the opposite. He's making people unclean. He is heaping up sins. He's cutting people off from God. So Jesus comes first to Levi. He cleanses and forgives Levi. And Levi comes and we see an astounding reversal Levi's house, Levi's house now hosts what? As it should. Cleansing, forgiveness, fellowship, feasting between God and man, Jesus Christ and sinners. Do you know what the name Matthew means? What what Jesus will call Levi? This is good news for all you Matthews in here, of which there are many. The name Matthew means gift of God. Jesus takes the man who was a tax and a curse and he makes him a gift. What redemption. I need help today from some of the children. Children, if you will. Children, if you will. I need your help with a little game. I have Everett locked in. Yes. We got this, Everett. I need you to help me answer a couple questions. If there is a fire, who do you go to? Nice. Fire station. Fireman. I knew Everett's my guy. Everett, three suckers for you if mom and dad allow it. If there is danger or a crime happening, who do you call? Nailed it, Ada. Oh, yeah. Now we know there's incentive. All right. If you are really sick, really sick, who would you go to? Hospital. Ambulance, doctor. Yes, the hospital. Yes. Some might say the hospital is where you go to die, so maybe you don't go there. But no, you're right. It is the doctor. It is the hospital. If you are full of sin... Who do you go to? Jesus. Yep. You pray. That's good too. In one sense, yes. And in one sense, no. No. Why? This text is shouting to you. Jesus comes to you. People full of sin. Jesus comes to you. That is what this text is showing. You don't come to Jesus. Jesus comes to you. You see, we can look at lepers and paralyzed men and we can understand why Jesus would have compassion on them, right? They didn't choose this. They didn't choose to become unclean. But what about these sinners, these unclean, uncaring, loving their sin or too stupid to change people? How could we ever have compassion on them? And Jesus says, I came for sinners. I came for the sick in sin. Jesus comes for you. 
Jesus has compassion on you even when you hate him and, and come to him as a sinner. There's three brief applications for you today. One, you who grew up in the faith, you who are unchurched, are you righteous? Is your life all cleaned up? Do you look the part? When you see those lives of others who uh, don't look cleaned up, is your impulse ick? Is it yuck? Is it, I'm going to move away and not towards? You see, Jesus' proverb in verse 17 was very acceptable to the scribes. They heard what he's saying. Yeah, righteous, sick. Makes sense that you're hanging out with them, Jesus. But Jesus is implying this. If you think you're righteous, Jesus didn't come for you. Jesus came for the people who knows they are sinners. You must acknowledge sinners sick with sin. You must acknowledge that the ground at the cross is level. You are sick like the rest, and you need Christ, the physician, to save you. Two, perhaps you're the opposite. Maybe you're here this morning knowing that you are a sinner. You know your thoughts and your actions behind closed doors and in the dark of night. Do you think your sickness is too great to overcome? Do you think that Jesus is only disgusted, disappointed with you, that he is decidedly against you? Jesus says, you are precisely who I came for. Come in faith to him. Find your seat at the table. Find your seat at the table. Come in faith. Jesus is willing and ready to cleanse you, forgive you, and feast with you. A final application from this first point, which is very long. The second point is shorter. Fret not. For all of us, we usually don't wake up in the morning, look in the mirror, and say, today's a good day to be self-righteous. Today's a good day to be a, a Pharisee. Mm-hmm. Yet, when we consider our life and our relationships, how many, how many of our relationships are, those, are with those who are sick in sin? How many times in the last year have you had a neighbor cross the threshold of your door or shared a meal at your table? How many coffees or walks have you taken with the unchurched or dechurched, those who outwardly seem to have no religious interest? In the coming month, I challenge you, six sinners saved by a wonderful Savior, especially the members. You didn't know what you are getting into. Especially the members here. Put skin in the game. Jesus brought you to his table. You must bring people to yours. That is your mark that you have been saved by such a Savior. He has done so for you. And so doing, together, we pray that Clearwater Presbyterian Church would become a community, not chiefly of the righteous-looking, but rather a community of people who know they are sinners. And more importantly still, they know their Savior and that he has invited them to the table. So Jesus, the physician, invites you to come and to feast, to find your seat at the table. In our second point and shorter one, Jesus is not only a physician inviting the sick, but he is the bridegroom or groom for us people who don't use bridegroom, which is all of us. And he's feasting with his guests. Well, look with me in verses 18 to 22. Now, it's the people, notice, who are asking the question, not the scribes. Right? This is just people asking the question. Why is it that John the Baptist's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast regularly, but yours don't, Jesus? Well, first off, what is fasting, and why are they doing it? It feels ironic that I take a drink of water as I talk about fasting. Fasting is to deprive oneself of food, even water at times, and typically for a full day. It was primarily done uh, as an act of mourning if someone died or something terrible happened, or more commonly, 
it was a voluntary expression of repentance, right? Of sadness and sorrow over your sin. Now, there's only one day that's specified in Israel's calendar year of when you must fast, mandatory one. And it was before the Day of Atonement. That's that one day where the sacrifices are made and you're forgiven. And so the fasting was done so that they would remember their sin and their need to be made right. However, by Jesus' day, uh, the common practice of Pharisees and, and their disciples, and actually really almost any religious teacher, any serious one, perhaps even John the Baptist, we might add, was that you would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Mondays and Thursdays. Some of you, you're ready to write this down. Now I know how, how and when I should fast. But you see, their believed aim was that by doing this, they would actually accelerate God's redemption. They said, by doing this, this is going to mean the Messiah, that promised one, is going to come back and he's going to save us. Right? David's kingdom will be established again. Now, although the Pharisees had formulated many unnecessary traditions off of the law, and they expected people to observe them, fasting, this one, wasn't necessarily bad. We shouldn't, we shouldn't think that when we see this. Why? Because John the Baptist, cousin and friend of Jesus, is, his disciples are doing it too. The fasting wasn't bad. It wasn't necessary, but it wasn't bad that they were doing it. And that's why the question comes, Jesus, your friend John the Baptist, and the religious people, their disciples are fasting. Why aren't yours? Well, I want you to remember here that the word disciple isn't actually just saying the 12, because he hasn't called them all yet. We're only at five. In a chapter, he'll get all of them. So disciples here is very general in speaking of the tax collectors and the sinners too, those who are following Jesus along the way. Now, if anyone should be repenting, right? This is why this question makes sense. If anyone should be repenting, shouldn't it be the guys hanging around you, Jesus? The sinners, the tax collectors. And Jesus answers with a question, verse 19. In essence, he's asking, can the wedding guests fast while at the wedding with the groom? He answers, of course not. Of course they can't. Ancient Jewish, Jewish wedding feasts were glorious. See, even religious teachers were expected to stop teaching the Bible to get their students and to go to the party. They were expected to do this. For the week that followed the wedding, the bridegroom and the bride wouldn't go on a honeymoon. Instead, they'd open their home. They'd have an open house for a week. It was a continued celebration and party, feasting. And this was the happiest week of their lives, most likely. They are treated like a king and a queen, sometimes even wearing crowns, right? So the first couple who gets married at this church... The expectations are high, right? But Jesus is saying, this is what it's like for these people who are with me. This is the best week of their life. They've come near to the bridegroom. How can they fast? Well, Jesus in verse 20 then, he starts to shape though a prophecy of the future, of his death. Because he says that he will be taken, right? That taken has overtones of dying. And indeed he will on the cross. And he says, in those days, then the followers will fast. Then they'll mourn. Well, Jesus finishes his response in verses 21 and 22 with two brief parables about not putting new wine into old wineskins or sewing unshrunk cloth on an already shrunk garment. Mistakes we've all made, right? Mistakes we've all done. Now, obviously, we, that maybe is not common to us uh, and if more foreign to us, at least the, the part about the unfermented wine putting into old wineskins. But we, we can understand the illustrations in general. But what is Jesus actually saying about himself? 
and about the law and about the Pharisees and even their traditions. Let me answer you by taking you back to our Old Testament passage in Hosea 2. If you go back, you see there, God is not speaking to just one woman. Rather, he's speaking to his people. He's speaking to his people who have been like prostitutes. They have gone from lover to lover to lover. And what does he say? I will come and allure you back to myself. I will come as your husband, a bridegroom. I will shelter, secure you. I will promise to marry you. That's betrothed. And in my steadfast love and mercy, I will make you righteous and faithful, and you will know the Lord. Here's a fascinating detail. Nowhere in the Old Testament is the Messiah, who would be a coming king, priest, prophet, nowhere is he ever called the bridegroom. There's only one person called the bridegroom in the Old Testament. It's Yahweh. It's the Lord. Jesus is saying, I'm the bridegroom. I am God enfleshed here among you, eating with sinners, coming to cleanse, forgive, and have fellowship with you to make you mine. This is why. This is why Jesus' ministry bursts wineskins and tears cloth. It's not because the law is bad. We miss this. We're like, yeah, the law's got to be bad, right? Jesus had to fix it. No, the law isn't bad. It's because the law can't do what Jesus is doing. The law can't put on flesh and come near to sinners, cleanse them, and forgive them. It can't. But Jesus can. This is why Jesus is better. Jesus is saying, truly, I'm doing a new thing. I come near you. The law couldn't. I come near you. I who live the law perfectly am God flesh, God in the flesh. And I come near and you become clean. You become forgiven. Jesus the bridegroom then comes and invites you to come to the wedding banquet, to come to his table to feast. So you must find a seat at his table. Now, if your response is like Levi's, and we, we could maybe assume like the tax collectors and sinners, on this side of Jesus' death, on his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and his baptizing of the church by the Holy Spirit, on this side of all of that, you are no longer guests at the wedding. Who are you at the wedding? You're the bride. You are the bride. Ephesians 5 shows Christ as the husband and the church as his bride. Revelation 19, 7 through 8, it says that at the marriage, the wedding feast of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, at the end of all things, when it happens, the bride will come in fine linen, pure, beautiful, in splendor to her Savior. And she will belong to the Lord. Hosea 2 will be fulfilled in full, finally. Let me offer you just a few applications before we close. In considering this, I'm going to do something the culture says you can't do. You're not supposed to tell people how to feel tough. The Bible does. Here's an application. Feel joy. Feel joy. You can imagine the joy of being a guest at a wedding. It's a blast. But how much more joy does the bride have on her wedding day as she is clothed in utter beauty, in purity, in splendor. This is the type of joy the church can have because Jesus Christ has lived righteously, died for your unrighteousness, rose again to give you life. You can have certainty by faith in Christ that there is a seat at the table for you forever. Feel unabashed 
unrestrained, completely and perfectly reasonable joy. Your name tag is at the head table as the bride of Christ. Feel joy. Second, when you grasp, when you grasp that Jesus the bridegroom has come, that he invites you to the feast, you cannot carry on with business as usual. You cannot continue on with status quo religiosity or with ho-hum faith. No. See, Jesus is not a dash of coffee creamer to your coffee cup of religious, religious patterns and traditions and disciplines that you've set up. Jesus shatters the cup. How? By overflowing it with all of life-altering faith. He invites you to a feast. Does your faith in Christ, your relationship with God, seem more like a feast or more like a famine? Is your reading and your talking to God, that is prayer, is it rich like a wedding feast? Or is it lacking like yesterday's lunch leftovers? All of life, all of our relationship with God will not always be a feast. It's not always going to be like that because we are sinners. And as Matt said, it's difficult to come and worship. I don't feel it. Jesus does. Jesus always comes for you, whether you feel it or not. There are always ebbs and flows, and it will be that way until he returns to that wedding banquet of the Lamb, the one where you have a seat as the bride. So I ask you this week, would you pray? Would you pray that God would make your Bible reading, your prayer, your family worship, your worship here, and the fellowship that we have that follows this, would you pray that it would truly be a feast? It is. Would you pray that you feel like it is? Because it is. Would you even ask others this week, would you lean on the others in this church and say, how is your relationship with God feast-like? How might I might grow? How might I grow in my faith? Do that with at least one person this week. A final application for some here. This will sound strange. You may need to fast. If you have never felt repentance over your sin, if you've never had remorse, if you're in a season simply where sin abounds and you just don't care, perhaps you need to fast and feel sorrow over your sin. But before you do that, you actually have to first come feast. You have to first come in faith to Jesus Christ and enjoy the feast, feel the joy. And in feeling the joy of being the the bride, then you fast over your sin and turn from it. We're in the days where the bridegroom is where? In heaven. And we are fasting at times. And we are turning from our sin. Jesus, you see, is a friend to sinners. But elsewhere in the Gospels, he does say, go and sin no more. Why? Because he loves you and he hates sin. That's what he chooses to die for, is the sin for you. And if we fast, we fast not so that we're forgiven. That's already done. We fast with an earnest expectation of that final forever feast when Christ returns. Indeed, Jesus Christ proclaims, come as you are. Come as you are. And he means it wholly and perfectly because why? Because when you come, you're made clean. Correction, when he comes to you, you are made clean and you are forgiven and you can have friendship, feasting with the Savior and his redeemed bride, the church. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are such sick sinners. God, every day, every day we forget your mercies. 
but yet you promise us that every day they're new again. Your love never runs short, but ours always does. You never run out of the feast, but we live like we're in a famine. God, let us hear your invitation as the physician, as the bridegroom, that we might, as sick sinners, come and be healed, that we might come and be filled and feast with you, Jesus Christ, forevermore. Would you prepare our hearts now as we go to a table where we actually have a seat at the table? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.